Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope everybody is having a very happy Passover and a happy Good Friday. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Barry Pavel, who leads the National Security Program at the RAND Corporation Think Tank, and former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast joining us uh, from Paris, where he is also teaching uh, at Sciences Po. Everybody, uh, good morning. Thanks so very much for joining us. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And our coverage uh, this week of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show was sponsored by HII, Leonardo DRS, GE Marine, a GE Aerospace Company, and Helicon Chemical. Everybody, once again, uh, welcome back uh, to the program, Jim. And just a quick programming note, uh, Michael Herson and Dove Zakheim will be off uh, for uh, the next uh, two weeks in part because of congressional research as well as the Passover holiday. And we look forward to welcoming him back uh, soon. Uh, Jim, you're gonna start us off uh, in the absence of uh, big congressional uh, news. Uh, it's been a big week uh, in Europe. Uh, we congratulate on this program, Finland, on becoming the Alliance's 31st uh, member and have regularly discussed our expectation that Sweden uh, would soon uh, follow, especially after the, the, the Turkish election. If anybody wants to weigh in any more on that, I think uh, that's, uh, you know, I don't know any, anything is different today than it was uh, a week ago. Uh, Russia's war on Ukraine is continuing. Uh, U.S. and NATO plans to help Ukraine uh, were leaked on social media, which was very uh, unfortunate. Uh, Paris uh, has been racked by more uh, demonstrations, uh, but French President Emmanuel Macron and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, visited uh, China. Macron was on a state visit. He called on Xi to pressure uh, Putin to end the war, uh, but struck business deals, uh, saying that it was important to engage uh, with uh, Beijing uh, on trade. The uh, EC president was a little bit tougher, saying that it was important to de-risk uh, the relationship. She, for his part, was non-committal on, on pressuring Moscow uh, and instead warned Macron and von der Leyen against, uh, quote, escalating uh, the crisis. Clearly, he calculated, and, and perhaps correctly, that business deals would mollify France uh, and Europe. Jim, does this visit play into China's hands by undermining both the U.S.-led drive for the world to get tougher on China? Uh, but also the strategy to be tough on China. I mean, effectively, did Paris uh, and Europe choose business deals over unity, or is that too shallow a, uh, an assessment? No, I, th I think it's an important assessment. I think it's an important assessment, too, about uh, how strange it was to have uh, um, van der Leyen there, as well as uh, to having Macron there. And then, of course, Schultz uh, was there a few weeks ago, uh, I, I just I feel that if anyone was undercut, it was van der Leyen. I think I think catching a ride with the French and kind of being alongside of this state visit by France was really weird. Uh, and I, I just think if I were van der Leyen, I would not go on that. I go on my own. She represents the European Union, and that's much stronger than France uh, in terms of trade and this type of thing. So I just I just felt that was a little strange. To, but just that part, as far as undercutting the U.S., uh, you know, the French 
uh, have their line that they take. And they do with Russia, too, when he's on the phone to Putin. Uh, the U.S. is the bad cop. The U.S. is out there trying to get everyone to hew a tougher line. Uh, Van der Leyen has a tougher line. But uh, but the French and, um, and Macron, they, he, 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 he's more uh he's he's on his own clock you know he's on his own uh national uh agenda which is trying always to to uh come at them from another way uh trying to be the good cop if you will and i i don't think that necessarily undercuts the u.s because that's we've come to expect that that's not something new i'm sure there was discussion back and forth between washington and paris before he left and i'm hopeful that there will be a back brief when macron gets back to paris but but I think uh, I, I think it's 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 France. It's not like the EU going in there and saying things like that, or a big a coalition of European allies going to Beijing and saying these kinds of things. It's it's coming out of it's coming out of Paris, and we understand that's where they come from. Uh, and so I just I think there's some eyes that rolled, but but I, I don't think in Washington there was much much more than that. But I do think in Brussels I would. I would wonder <laughs> that that was a good move, sending van der Leyen. And one more point quickly, uh, Bago, and that is on the, uh, you mentioned that the demonstrations the, that have been happening here in Paris, they've been getting smaller, they've been getting weaker. There was a big, uh, there was a big uh, strike on Thursday and supposedly lots of big demonstrations and I didn't see them. I saw a little one, I didn't see a big one and it's mainly students. So I think for Macron, he's hanging tough on that pension plan and uh, maybe it's working because I think it seems like things are winding down. Not that people are happier or, or you know, accepting of what happened uh, in the National Assembly. I just think people have grown fatigued, I guess. I don't know. But uh, anyway, I, I found it interesting last week. Uh, Elizabeth Bourne, uh, bearing, no pun intended, uh, more of the backlash than Macron at this point. Is that correct in your assessment? Oh. Oh, absolutely. She's she is she's the one out front on this, and uh, she'll be the one to go down if things, in fact, turn bad. But uh, she's in there trying to talk to the unions, trying to uh, uh, you know, uh, trying to bring some uh, reality to this. But uh, the unions aren't listening to her. She's not giving an inch, and the unions walk out on meetings because she's not giving an inch. And so. Uh, you know, but she is hanging tough and she's really taking it hard while Macron is like uh, is, is kind of floats above it all and goes off to Beijing and does what the president of France does. Meanwhile, the prime minister is taking the heat. Uh, Patrick, was this a big win uh, for Beijing and uh, for Moscow? And I should point out, uh, right, Moscow uh, uh, arrested Evan uh, Gershkovich, uh, a Wall Street Journal reporter who's just doing his job. Uh, you know, uh, Russia doing what it does best, right? Hostage take, strike civilian population centers, especially when it's uh, offensive, uh, appears uh, not to be going uh, well and consuming its army. We're going to talk a little bit more about that, uh, Barry, and want to get your sense on it in a minute. But from an optic standpoint, what did you make of this last week as China has rather dramatically both increased its diplomatic posture, right? I mean, we saw another meeting of the foreign ministers of Saudi Arabia and, and Iran uh, happen in Beijing, while at the same time, right, ratcheting up tensions. We're going to talk about that later in the show as well, uh, in the wake of uh, uh, Tsai Ing-wen's uh, trip uh, to the United States. But just give us your sense. Was this a win for Beijing and Moscow? No, I don't think so. But let me start in Lafortebo prison, you know, the Tsarist prison where Evan uh, Gerskovich is being held, Gerskovich is being held, um, and that is uh, that 
the unity that allies have shown against Russia's invasion of Ukraine is exactly what China's trying to avoid. Um, so while this is not a great win for Xi Jinping, it is part of his plan to be able to drive wedges in uh, the alliance. Uh, and if he can separate Europe, that is part of Beijing's regional tailored uh, diplomacy. Uh, and they've been trying to say their ambassadors, for instance, in Europe have been trying to differentiate uh, the European view of what they meant by um, the no limits relationship between Russia and China from what East Asians think, which is that, no, this is a pretty close and getting closer relationship between Moscow and Beijing. Um, and so, uh, you know, she is getting part of what he wants here uh, by trying to play to Macron's ego. Um, but Macron is is on to that as well. So even though he has a healthy ego uh, and the French have a healthy sense of the role that they want to play as a balancing power and they want strategic autonomy, they also know that there are limits to that strategic autonomy and that if the chips are down, as Charles de Gaulle said, you know, they'll be with us. They are playing this game in part because they want to woo China away from the Taiwan scenario and escalating there, uh, keep the markets open for Europe and for France, and uh, try to differentiate uh, Xi from from Putin. So this is a you know both sides are playing this game in terms of Beijing and, and Paris. But as Jim said, the EU is a different actor in in, in this and, and caught up somewhat in the middle uh, of this uh, of this diplomacy at the moment, and that may have been playing into the hands of Beijing a bit. But I, I think this is a complex diplomacy of our time right now. Barry, your your sense on how all of this uh, played off, uh, played out and is playing out uh, as a keen observer of both European and, and Asian security trends. Well, I think, um, it, you know, it's increasingly clear that she and Putin are united. Um, and this is an alliance in all but name. And will continue for the foreseeable future. But we kind of treat the two um, competitors as a it would be a nice policy word. We treat them as separately. We have separate bureaucracies. We have separate policies. We don't um, plan and develop policy really with an eye toward the two of them working extremely closely together. And so I think your sort of the the motivation behind your question is a good one. We need to really change how we think about and how we structure our processes and approaches and strategies to deal with these two, you know, very serious adversaries who are thinking strategically while we are not. And I'd be happy to get into that at the appropriate time. Yeah. I mean, well, let me just ask one uh, follow up to that. Right. I mean, the um, there, there was a lot of resistance uh, in in Washington, particularly in the Pentagon, when the administration linked uh, standing up uh, to, uh, you know, standing up for Ukraine uh, or standing up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine as a message for China. And it wasn't until late last year that even some friends in the Pentagon were telling me, wow, you know, that was right, right? If we don't stand up for Ukraine, it will, um, you know, it could cause China to miscalculate on Taiwan and, and sends the right message, right? I mean, so there was resistance there. You still see a disconnect uh, in the way that we're doing this, right? That's not a good enough step from your standpoint. I mean, it's a good start, but we just we everything we do and all of us are veterans of the bureaucracy and still maintain close contact with it. I mean, everything we do treats them as separate problems. There's a Russia problem regarding it in particular, its ongoing invasion of Ukraine, and then there's a China problem. So some policy is made with an eye toward both together, but very, very little. And so um, I think we're really playing small ball regarding 
uh, the war and how it impacts the global order. Uh, earlier this morning, there's a headline in The Guardian, Kremlin says its strategic aim in Ukraine is to create a new world order. They're thinking very, very big. And if you saw the off-mic remark after she had dinner with Putin in Moscow, where he said, uh, we're about to set the conditions for the world for the next hundred years, we can do this together. That's the way the United States and its allies on three continents should be thinking. But we're really not. We're thinking and, tactically and uh, about the war, but we're not thinking strategically about the war and the aftermath. Well, I, I want to uh, get into that. So what does that look like? Right. I mean, the war is about to get to its next phase. Unfortunately, uh, it looks like uh, um, U.S. and NATO plans, albeit about a month old, uh, were leaked uh, on uh, social media. Some of it has been doctored. Others uh, have not. Um, what does a coordinated strategy, Barry, look like? And, and Jim and Patrick would like to get your sense uh, on 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 Barry's take and what is it uh, we need to do because this is a topic as uh, everybody in the audience knows and all of you guys know we've been talking a lot about so it's good to have a fresh voice uh, bringing their ideas to this what what is how how do we need to be structured how we, do we need to be thinking about uh, about the, the this competition especially if it's right a century long and is going to redefine the the global order and I'm with you that the the Russians and the Chinese if nothing are persistent and consistent, right? Their view is patience uh, on their part will pay off. Yeah, I mean, so it's correct that it's important to think about getting weapons to Ukraine qu more quickly, getting supplies, doing sanctions, but, you know, but this is important, but insufficient. You know, if you think about this as an historic moment like 1919 and 19, 1945, you know, at some point, this major war will end and we have an opportunity to reset everything. How it ends will affect Xi Jinping's power base, will obviously affect Putin's power base. So this is you know, a new era of history, not to get too dramatic. And the only two people talking about it are Xi and Putin. So to me, this means let's think strategically at the end of World War I, uh, didn't work out so well, led to a global depression, the rise of Hitler and fascist Germany, World War II. When World War II ended, we did, they did take a strategic view to consolidate the military victory and rebuild and reset. Wasn't all immediate, but Bretton Woods, NATO, IMF, World Bank. So this is another such moment to get it right. And my view would be we would want to look to bind like-minded countries on the three continents together to counter the combined threat of China and Russia. Which allies would be in, which are out? I mean, it depends on the domain, security, economy, technology, democratic practices, information. But a few examples, you know, a NATO-China council would be uh, one thing that I've recommended in the past and will continue. Two, uh, a G10 plus, you know, that would look at geopolitical and economic and security issues together. Um, three, you know, what about a Taiwan support group and a Ukraine contact group working together? We have Jap I, I was just in Poland. There's Japanese officials consulting with the Poles. That's very interesting. And you know why they're doing it. So why don't we get a grouping together, US, Poland, the Baltics, Japan, Australia, UK, as just one of many, many other examples. The you know, only limit is our imagination. So uh, right. how do we get ahead of these, what you know, what's coming and reset strategically? That's my main point. Um, and uh, it's interesting, right, because we had the European uh, quad uh, meet uh, and and uh, I was going to ask Patrick about this in a little bit. But the, the interesting role that Japan is playing uh, with the U.S. 
South Korea uh, and Japan worked together on a, a, a agreement on um, curbing North Korea's nuclear program. And then we also saw uh, the US-Japan uh, working with the Vietnamese uh, on an agreement over the past week uh, as well. Jim, let me bring you in and and kind of get Jim and and your take, Patrick, as well uh, on the idea and how we need to be structuring ourselves strategically uh, for what is increasingly a singular problem uh, as much as we want to bring sort of a Kissingerian divide and conquer approach to uh, the the um, the problem. Go Go ahead, Jim, start us off. Well, you know, I, I, as usual, I, I agree with Barry, <laughs> but I, only thing I would say though, is it's not 1919 or, or night uh, or 1945. It's really like 1915 and 1941. I mean, in the sense that, you know, we're not at the, at the end game uh, we're, we're, we're still in the early days of this war. And I think it's, it's easier uh, to do a Versailles agreement as flawed as that one was. Uh, or what what Barry described post 1945 it's easier to do that when when the fighting is is almost at the end you know when we we see the light at the end of the tunnel uh, that certainly uh, invigorates these discussions to come up with institutions or arrangements or something uh, it's easier at that point than earlier in the in the conflict I will say though with Barry uh, that uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to put something together. I think it'll be harder because people are, are not just in a tactical frame of mind, but a lot of them are so unsure what the future holds that they're not ready to agree on something now. And, I, and so, it's, so, so th these discussions are happening. There are arrangements. Vago, you were just talking about some of them with Japan and South Korea and others. There are things that, that are being done that, that, that help to build a strategic framework. But I think it's gonna be easier to do it once we see some light at the end of the, at the, end of the, of the tunnel. Uh, but I'll, I'll just close and say that uh, Barry is absolutely right. We need to at least acknowledge we're not thinking strategically right now. Um, we, he, and I think some of the groupings he talked about, we should at least begin to sketch something out. Uh, but I think we're not going to see a lot of enthusiasm or sincere work being done by some of the allies uh, until there's a better feel where this is going. Uh, it's going to be easier later than now, but at least we should start. Uh, Patrick, uh, your, your sense uh, on the mechanics uh, of this and, uh, you know, Jim's sort of broader idea. Sure. Uh, first, I think, you know, Barry's right to bring in the strategic lens here. Obviously, uh, on this weekly podcast, we take a, a more granular look sometimes at some of the issues. And so it doesn't seem like it's strategy happening. But in fact, I think most of the things that Barry's pointing to uh, indeed are happening. They're just happening too slowly. Um, and they're not happening. And piecemeal. They're happening piecemeal as well. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I, I think he's right on this. Um, but if I'm looking ahead at the diplomatic calendar and I'm thinking what Kurt Campbell and other officials are planning, um, you know, and I'm heading to Vilnius myself as as a, as a non-governmental official to, to help think through some of the linkages between Europe and, and the Indo-Pacific as Vilnius prepares to host the NATO summit in the, in the summer. But what Japan's doing, not just in advance of the G7 that they're hosting next month, but also with the Quad Leaders meeting in Australia next month. I mean, there, there are a lot of uh, strategic moves that are thickening, and they're thickening because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's rising assertiveness and power. Um, and so th these things are being linked. But yes, it's still too piecemeal. It's still too slow. 
Uh, and yet this is the direction we, we must head. And I think there are a, a lot of good ideas out there and Barry's already mentioned several. Um, let me uh, take uh, the, the question uh, and Jim uh, or Barry, uh, either one of you can, can start us uh, off. Barry, let me maybe go to you on this. Right, I mean, we have the revelation of plans. Um, I mean, that's, you know, obviously it's bad. Does this necessarily change anything about what the next step in this conflict is? And what is the next step in this conflict, right? I mean, uh, the, you know, the, the months of talk of uh, the pending uh, Ukrainian uh, advance, uh, right? I mean, the spring offensive, we've heard Ukrainians suggest that, well, you know, once uh, we either take Crimea or mass on the Crimean border, we're willing to negotiate um, you know, an end to uh, hostilities. Uh, my sense on that was once we take back Crimea, we're, we're happy to discuss, or we're happy to discuss, but I may have misunderstood that. How, how does the revelation change what's to come, uh, if at all? And what is to come? What are the next phases of this? Because it seems like we're okay to fight to the last Ukrainian, um, and at the end of the day, the last time I checked, however badly things are going for Russia, they're actually not going that badly for Russia. Um, we're putting our own lens on top of this. Their economy actually grew modestly. Their economy apparently grew more than the British economy. Go ahead, Barry, start us off and then uh, Jim and Patrick. No, you've asked a lot of good questions. I'll try to answer some of them. I mean, um, I wish we didn't know as much as we know about what's coming next. I mean, I think we're way too open with uh, all the discussion of the coming counteroffensive uh, almost on a daily basis. You know, the leak aside, I, I you know, I, I, I kind of long for the time I read about where these kinds of, you know, really strategically important, you know, war plans, you know, would happen without everyone knowing ahead of time. But here we are. And so, um, yeah, clearly a Ukrainian counteroffensive supported by uh, significant um, allied and coalition support. Um, clearly, there was a leak of some sort. I mean, I think there's, you know, I assume this was just a leak and not, you know, if you've seen the minced meat um, deception plan for World War Two, I assume this is not minced borscht uh, where we're actually trying to deceive uh, Russia and going and Ukraine will do something else. Um, and so, you know, either there will be a marginal adjustment because of the leak, um, or you know, we'll just Ukraine will plow straightforwardly ahead. Um, but I think clearly there is a major, major counteroffensive. Um, also timed, by the way, as Jim will talk about, um, ahead of the July Vilnius summit. So if the counteroffensive goes very well and quickly. That'll help um, move things at the summit. If it's not going so well and quickly, Russia keeps throwing more bodies as cannon fodder, but they have a lot more bodies, as you were suggesting, Bago. And so I worry a lot about the disparity in manpower and how many people does Ukraine have uh, to train. Um, I heard some concerns about this when I was in Poland and Lithuania, where um, really, really, really concerned about um, young leaders in Ukraine and even to the point where an anecdote, we're going to hold them back and send the 50-year-olds uh, to the front um, because we need to preserve our future leadership. So anyway, I do worry enormously about uh, the scale, the mass disparity that you talked about, and we'll see what happens. Uh, uh, how, what, what conditions does this counteroffensive create 
for um, potentially the end of a war. But as Jim said, it may not be the end of a war. It may be a long time uh, before the war ends. And this is just one major phase. Jim? Well, like Barry, I've, I've been worried about the manpower issue, too, on the Ukraine side. And I'm also worried that uh, as time goes by, the, the Russians dig in further and further and their defenses become even more sophisticated. And it's going to be harder for Ukraine to go in there and dig it out because the numbers of tanks and APCs and others that are coming in, you know, they don't necessarily match what you're going to need to go up against the kinds of defenses they might have. I mean, I'm, we're, I'm glad they're there. Uh, you know, the uh, the challengers and the uh, leopards and this type of thing. But uh, I, I just um, I, I hope we can kick this off pretty soon uh, before before they uh, before the defenses become even tighter, but particularly before the Russian reinforcements uh, build up on the other side of the wall. Uh, and then it's going to be tough. And uh, I, you know, Barry mentioned the, the Vilnius summit, and I think he's absolutely right. Uh, that would be great if by uh, June things are looking good. But I think just to underline the point that it's not just there at NATO, but at the in the U.S. House of Representatives and, and across Europe, where Ukraine really needs a win here. They really need a they need an offensive that uh, really is able to uh, to show some results to, to keep us, you know, to keep us supportive and pushing out the equipment and this type of thing. It's again, I've said this in past um, podcasts where it's almost like the Civil War where Lincoln needed some victories uh, uh, they, they, his, for whether his, his own political um, his own political future or support coming out of Europe during the Civil War. I mean, he needed some victories to turn some things another way. And I think Ukraine, this offensive, we're all looking at it. We're all counting it down. We've given a lot of equipment. It's going to have a big impact uh, in terms of what could be a victory. Or, 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 you know, a very successful offensive, or if it's not, it's gonna have a major impact. So there's a lot riding on it. So, uh, so I agree with Barry on the, on the concerns and I'll just add my own, which is uh, we really need to, to, to get this going, I think. I, I just I hate to see the clock ticking. One last point real quick, Bago, on the leak. I, I, my understanding is it wasn't really a war plan that was leaked. There was some uh, pages, it almost looked like some, um, uh, some that, that's status. True. That's absolutely true. Yes. Yeah. So I, I don't think it's going to really have that much of an impact. But I think it's interesting what Barry said, you know, who knows where it came from and what the point of it was. So uh, but I think we just I think we got to figure out what it was. Was it a leak? Where did it come from? You know, that kind of thing. But I think that the, I think what was put out there in and of itself, that should I don't think it should stop what Ukraine needs to do. But we got to find out how it got out and, and how it was then turned around by the Russians. It uh, was uh, casualties, uh, weapon tables, utilization rates, uh, you know, how many, you know, the rate at which, for example, Ukrainians are using HIMARS uh, and the like, which could give insights as to uh, how deep their magazines uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, capabilities are, as well as casualty rates, which apparently the Russians doctored uh, to uh, increase uh, the size uh, of Ukrainian casualties, which are at about 100,000 in reality, and, and Russian casualties, which are at 200,000, and apparently they were changing some of that dynamic. Um, Patrick, uh, let me uh, get your take on this, because I want to get to the China part of the discussion, uh, which uh, is uh, critical, especially uh, given uh, the extraordinary threat that Beijing uh, has made uh, to uh, board and inspect Taiwanese ships. Obviously, that's something that Taiwan rejects. Uh, a, a lot of uh, 
uh, Sturm and Drang. Uh, you know, Patrick, you're now uh, a, a sanctioned person at a sanctioned institution. So congratulations uh, on that. But want to get your sort of sense on uh, the Ukraine war before going to the China part of the discussion. Sure. Let me just pick up with some speculation on the disinformation uh, and the leak, uh, which are combined here. If you go back to 2014 uh, in the annexation of Crimea, um, you know there was that's when the active disinformation internet campaign uh, sprang out of Russia in many ways. Um, I think also we've seen in the last couple of years the U.S. trying to preempt uh, a malign action, uh, including the Russian invasion of Ukraine of February of 2022 by uh, putting information and intelligence out to, to, to preempt that. This could be an attempt by the Russian intelligence to uh, kind of push back on this. And, and obviously, I think these documents may come out of a, a NATO briefing um, and uh, you know maybe with some added disinformation like the casualty numbers thrown in. Uh, so they've got a mixture of the disinformation plus trying their own Russian attempt to preempt the counteroffensive that is coming uh, that Barry has noted is uh, has been too well uh, telegraphed, uh, perhaps uh, in the press. Um, that's my take on it. That's all speculative. We'll see what happens. Um, I think, uh, in general, um, the two uh, focal points uh, militarily and politically that link Europe and Asia so much is what happens in Ukraine. I won't call it outcome because I think you know Barry and Jim are right to talk about phases and you know uh, just because the next phase leads to maybe uh, some more diplomacy uh, or doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's the outcome nonetheless um how ukraine unfolds that war unfolds is critically important for global security um and secondly the fact that taiwan has become increasingly ground zero in this uh competition with with china and um, you know, the Tsai Ing-wen visit is, <laughs> has just underscored that tremendously. It's not because Hudson and the Ronald Reagan Library and, and, and uh, Ambassador Xiaobi uh, Kim, the Taiwan uh, representative uh, in the United States, are all now sanctioned uh, by the CCP because they didn't like giving voice to, uh, to Tsai Ing-wen and didn't like giving voice to Taiwan's democracy. Um, that's really uh, aggravating the CCP. They just cannot stomach the fact that there is an alternative to one party rule where everything is handed down and you abide by that rule. Um, and, and it's just, it's really getting them. Um, and so what they're doing right now, uh, if I can just segue to the, you know, the, 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 to what we're seeing, we're in day two of uh, having ships cross the median line, which they had regularly basically uh, dismantled after the Pelosi visit last August. Um, and they're crossing uh, into the Taiwan air defense identification zone with aircraft. Um, the Shandong aircraft carriers in the Bashi Channel, uh, you know, kind of poised over the horizon 200 nautical miles away from uh, Taiwan. Uh, just in case uh, there is an escalation as a result of China's announcement of a special three-day uh, monitoring and inspection of uh, cargo ships in transit uh, in Taiwan waters. And um, so far, there have been no incidents, no encounters to report as of this recording, um, but we're only uh, you know, now maybe beginning day two of that of three-day operation. So let's wait to see. Maybe at the end of it, they, they actually do try to stop a ship. Taiwan says they're not complying. That escalates a bit. Shandong can kind of, uh, even though it has no air operations going on right now on their flight deck, they could uh, put aircraft into the you know air uh, over this. And that could escalate very quickly into an encounter, especially since China's not abided 
by any guardrails, any kind of uh, special hotlines uh, with the United States not answering the phone. Um, they've resisted that to try to increase the intimidation power of the, the PLA and paramilitary operations they're engaged in. But all of that hard power is really not the game right now for China. That is, that's the saber rattling that they want. Um, it's not quite as bad even as, uh, you know, post Pelosi visit, uh, but it is uh, mixed with soft power. Um, so, you know, the $500 million internet cable to compete with our internet cable under the seas, um, the sanctions we mentioned, uh, courting Ma Ying-jeou in the Guomindang Party, that's going on right now. That is very seriously constraining uh, China because they really do want to have an influence on the next government that is elected in Taiwan in January. Uh, and they're challenging uh, our dollar diplomacy, and they're and they're also bringing together uh, again Saudi and Iranian leaders uh, for a kind of a you know follow up on on their own uh, ability to try to uh, broker peace here between two uh, uh, two countries of of, of great uh, competition in the in the Gulf. From the White House perspective, from the from the Asian uh, Pacific security analyst perspective, this has been a successful, well handled. Uh, trip by Tsai Ing-wen in terms of you know well orchestrated, deliberately uh, following longstanding practice and at the same time um, making sure that there's uh, clear bipartisan support. Speaker McCarthy was you know adamant on that was 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 strong on this issue. Um, I've never seen him seen such a statesman in fact out there at the Reagan Library as uh, in this moment. And now you've got the follow-on, and this is this is very interesting. Of course, you've got. Uh, uh, Chairman McCall and leading a bipartisan delegation to Taiwan next week. So Tsai Ing-wen's not just on her way back, but she's going to be followed by a very high-level bipartisan uh, sort of uh, delegation coming to Taipei. And this is going to continue to, to be the case. So China will continue to rattle the saber, continue their soft power push as well. Um, the question is, will they let and will they encourage Secretary Blinken to come and visit the middle of this month to try to kickstart some diplomacy? There's been very active Track two and track 1.5 diplomacy going on behind the scenes that I can't talk about, but uh, it's been very active. And so we'll have to see. They're playing it. China's keeping all their options open as they always do. Um, they definitely want some economic uh, uh, support and more FDI to pour in, uh, more direct investment. They're worried about their economy, uh, but they're also very seriously guarding their core interests on, on Taiwan issues. And they want to put down the marker, not just for Tsai Ing-wen but really for her successor next year. Almost all, I mean, if, if you look at the budget, uh, the administration's budget, you look at the AUKUS deal, um, it, it appears to reflect a not an immediate danger zone. Obviously, we have the entire kerfuffle around uh, General Minahan, uh, the uh, Air Mobility Commander, talking about a two-year window, right? That was, he expressed that that's my personal opinion. And, uh, you know, I don't think we have a long time. We have a small window. Uh, last week, we heard uh, from Daryl Bricker uh, of Ipsos, uh, who you know very thoughtfully discussed that global economic trends are actually changing and changing more rapidly than even demographers and statisticians uh, like him uh, expected. Um, and so there's this sense that actually the Chinese might move a lot sooner, not in the you know 2030s, which seems to be the administration's calculus. Patrick, and then I want to get uh, 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 Barry, your and and Jim, your takes. Is this window actually a much smaller window, much shorter window? And do we need to be a lot more vigilant? Because let's say the Chinese do start boarding Taiwanese ships or decide they're going to do a blockade. 
you know, are we, it's not about, you know, every time you ask somebody, what do we do in the event that they do a blockade, which was an idea, by the way, that Royal Navy friends of mine were saying, hey, you know, if I was China, I'd do a blockade and confound all of us uh, with this. But, you know, not very good, clear answers to how we would deal with that. Patrick, is the, is the window smaller? And if the Chinese decide to do something, how do we respond to that? Do U.S. Navy ships start escorting Taiwanese cargo ships? I mean, what's the answer to this? Because the Chinese attitude is move, continually move the goalposts, right? They built islands. They declare an air defense identification zone. Now they're increasingly harassing traffic, whether on the surface of the sea or above it, on an incessant basis to the point where they yeah. eventually want to dissuade somebody from, from operating. Go ahead. No, I mean, you're right. I mean, this is their pressure tactic, and they're much more likely to try to do this kind of salami slicing of imposing domestic law onto an international situation over Taiwan, uh, and then to try to enforce that. And the fact that they've got everything in place, you know, the the, the hard power PLA Navy, um, the, the maritime militia, uh, the Coast Guard, the legal framework, you know, that's how they they prepare their battlefield for that kind of salami slicing. And, and it's it's been a a shortening window for some time. So we can, you know, let's go back a decade. Let's go back to when uh, Bob Gates was the Secretary of Defense and he was cutting the number of buy for F-22s um, and we were still contracting our defense industry. So rather than thinking about, we're going to need a defense industry that has more competition and the greater ability to to, to create engines and ships uh, and, and missiles, um, you know, we were going the other direction uh, and we right. were, you know, and so we don't have that luxury anymore. Um, and we have a very short window, but we also—I I think officials in the Pentagon recognize that. Um, again, the, the question is: Are we doing enough about it, though? Okay, it's enough to say we want deterrence every day. And again, you can't see Deputy Secretary Kath Hicks in a speech without her saying, "Today we are doing more on deterrence because we do not want the Chinese to miscalculate." So they're 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 clearly aware of the acute need to deter every single day um, China's growing power. At the same time, um, are we doing enough? And the answer is probably not. Uh, when you think about the priorities in the budget, we all have different takes on this. But um, even if you didn't have more money, you know, would you really want to spend it the way you're doing it right now? And I, I think um, there are different ways. We also just need more allies and partner contributions, even if they don't add up to a superpower status. They really do augment our ability uh, and they're critical. So what we're going to see in Balakatan, the exercise off the northern Luzon uh, and, and around the South China Sea and the Bashi Channel here in, in the coming weeks with the Philippines is critically important. I mean, Marcos has made a, a U-turn from Duterte on uh, moving ahead on the Enhanced Defense Cooperation uh, Agreement. And we're going to see Japanese money. Um, this has just been codified this week. This is a, a new type of uh, an extension of official development assistance, basically foreign assistance money, but used for official security assistance. And so this is this is the new Japanese defense budget, if you will. Uh, it's going to allow for some quick infrastructure grants, uh, equipment grants to countries like the Philippines right now. Um, and that's a that's a that goes hand in hand with the new EDCA sites, the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement sites between the U.S. and the Philippines. Um, and so you can see how the U.S. is working on the ground to, for deterrence right now. This Balagatan exercise is, is about deterring China this month. Um, and yet, is it enough? And the answer is no. We still need more and we still need to do it faster. Barry, your take? 
Yeah, I'd start by saying we have no, no one has any idea when Xi Jinping might make a move on Taiwan. And I bet you Xi Jinping has no idea when he would make a move on Taiwan. Uh, in the meantime, I agree with Patrick. Uh, I agree it's urgent. And when I was in Taiwan with Mark Esper last year and held a press conference, you know, I said, you know, the Ukrainians wish they had acted with more urgency. You know, you should now take this lesson and act with as much urgency as possible as if it's going to happen extremely extremely soon. I think in the meantime, it is very likely that um, we'll have a phase of what I call hyper-hybrid activities. China's going to really ratchet up hybrid stuff, as we're seeing, disinformation, everything non-kinetic, and maybe a little bit of the kinetic, as you were uh, talking about. Um, I do agree with Patrick, get more allies, more partners, not just military, but economic. Integrated deterrence can help. You know, so if, if France and Germany sent the right messages, which I'm not confident they did when they were speaking with uh, Chinese leaders, that if they chose to make a move on Taiwan, there would be significant consequences in the economic realm. I think that would really um, help quite a bit. And this is another area where all the allies should get together and be on one common, uh, common sheet of music. I also think that we don't have the capabilities and the innovation yet. It's great to have exercises. Those are deterring when they're right. I think we need to have new approaches and um, lots of us are exposed to some of those approaches where um, we don't have to figure out how to move 10 million tons of metal in a week, that there are already interesting and very relevant and effective uh, military capabilities that can get the job done if China does choose to. Uh, invade Taiwan. But if someone put a gun to my head and said, will Xi Jinping invade anytime soon? Uh, I'll, I'll be contrarian here. I don't think anytime. Why would you play to the United States' greatest strength and risk everything, including your life, to do it this way rather than another way? So you don't think they will do anything stupid that triggers? I guess that's my question, right? They're going to make a statement about boarding, but they're not going to make good on a boarding. Is, no, is I think your... they... I think they may. No, I guess what I was saying was he, he's not going to launch an amphibious invasion to take over the island, a military operation, major right. military operation. I'm not one of those that is looking for the date when he's doing it. Um, I, but I do think we should proceed with great urgency, as I said, because you don't know. But um, in the meantime, I think we should be much smarter and quicker on responding. The fact that we didn't respond last year after the after what they did after the Pelosi, Pelosi visit was a huge missed opportunity. We should have done our own uh, keep out zones, announced our own keep out zones, conducted our own exercises after they did. You know what I mean? We just kind of let it happen. And so we should be similarly smart, quick, and reciprocal after they do anything like the kinds of things we're talking about right now. Jim, uh, your take, and uh, then want to do a quick round uh, on everybody on the uh, Afghanistan report, since all of you at one point or another worked Afghanistan, whether in the beginning or the middle or anywhere else. Go ahead, Jim. You know, I, I agree with, with what was just said by Patrick and, and, uh, and Barry. I, but I, I would say also that, um, you know, with war, you, did, you don't know when it's going to tick off. I mean, to sit here and to try to predict, uh, I, I just, I, you know, I, I don't think I can really do that. Uh, but I, what I would say, though, is that it's when you least expect it, it happens. Um, it's, it's, you, you might think it's five years from now, but something happens in the Straits and, 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 and one thing leads to another and you have a, 
uh, one rock pulled out of a landslide. Uh, and then you find yourself at war a lot earlier than you ever thought because that's was circumstances. That's just what happens. And so because of that, I think like Barry said, uh, and Patrick, you know, we have got to uh, go at full speed right now. And, 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 I, and, I, and I agree that we are doing that. Uh, but we've got to go. Uh, we, but we just have to know that uh, this we might not have the luxury of two or three years because shit happens, as they say. Uh, and we could find ourselves at war six months from now. Uh, and so we, we, we can't think that we've got the luxury of time to wait for the perfect solution for things. We've got to, we've got to start putting things together um, uh, more quickly than, than that. Um, let me uh, ask, uh, you know, kind of like go around the horn uh, on the Afghanistan report, the administration saying it should have uh, started. Uh, this review obviously began in December 21 uh, after the shambolic U.S. exit from Afghanistan. Um, obviously, a lot of the same messages were recast uh, the Trump administration made a deal. They, he committed the United States to it to exit. Uh, our choice was either uh, exit or uh, surge uh, troops in there. Not a lot of middle ground. Uh, you know, I think one of the calcula calculations was that uh, Ashraf Ghani was going to stay uh, in uh, Kabul rather than uh, leave uh, the way he did. Uh, although, you know, you're quibbling at the margins. It was shambolic. When we thought, you know, after we made the deal that stuff was going to stay together longer. Uh, and so the administration, the White House has said, look, we learned a lot of lessons that we actually uh, applied uh, in Ukraine to try to get Americans out of there faster, get them out of harm's way, not leave folks uh, stranded. From your guys' perspective, you know, what, what were the messages? What did you hear? Obviously, a lot of political fodder uh there whether you want you know and certainly most of it is critical of the administration barry why don't you uh start us off patrick uh and then uh jim and i've got one uh, quick uh question to ask that'll go to jim to wrap up the program go ahead barry yeah i mean i haven't looked into the details but um i'm skeptical of what i'm seeing in the in the reporting i mean i do think uh it was an error um you know that the the trump administration didn't handle the you know, their part very well. But um, I also thought that the withdrawal itself was an unmitigated operational disaster where um, the administration did everything backwards. You get civilians out first, then you get contractors, then the military, not the other way around. And it was a significant global, uh, did significant global damage to the United States credibility and influence and deterrence when we have ridiculous statements like we had from the defense leadership that said um, we can't, you know, we can't secure the area more than a block around the airport or whatever the, the statement was. I mean, unbelievable that those kinds of statements would have come out of a senior uh, U.S. official. So uh, I think the Biden administration should learn lessons from the, the really disastrous operational level approach uh, that it took, even if at the strategic level that made sense. Patrick, your, your sense on it? Well, most of these reviews are still classified, so I look forward to reading more about them when they're declassified. Um, but uh, you know, if, if the bottom line is that the administration realizes now that they need to prepare better for potential withdrawals and they need to go faster when a situation deteriorates, I'm not sure how hopeful that guideline, you know, those guidelines are, because uh, you know, 
you can't be prepared for withdrawal when you're still fighting a war. I mean, you're not you're not thinking about withdrawing. And so it was really one of the challenges that the U.S. government faced across administrations was, you know, did the military really want to pull all troops out? And apparently a lot of senior military officials wanted to keep the 2,500 troops in and keep waging a a, a, um, a defense of, of Kabul and so on. So you had um, a, a basic disagreement. And it was ultimately settled by the president basically making a decision, right? We're going to be out before 9-11-21, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, and so that that created uh, some of this operational uh, you know, disaster that, uh, that Barry has talked about. I think the question of can we get out uh, fast if things deteriorate, I think we have to be careful about making that our new standard operating procedure. If we're on the Korean Peninsula or we're in Japan <laughs> or elsewhere or even in Taiwan – and in, in, in our adversaries potentially uh, rattle sabers and fire missiles, are we really going to pull all the combatants out? I mean, all the civilians out and, and then and try to back off? I don't think so. I think we're going to be trying to show greater will and greater deterrence. So I'm not sure how much we've learned really from this Afghan withdrawal, uh, but I think it is worth uh, discussing it in full and, and with more facts. Uh, Jim, uh, last word uh, on this issue, and then I have to ask you very quickly a perception issue uh, as you sit there uh, in uh, Paris. Well, you know, I, I, as usual, I agree with my two colleagues, uh, and, and all of all of us have been in government. And this was this was called in, in one of the newspapers I read. It was called an after action report, which it was not. That's this is this is a political document. It was put together over years, lots of discussions, and and uh, but I, you know it's point the finger at Trump, et cetera, et cetera. But what I was really interested in, and I think a lot of people are interested in, is in those two or three days of decision-making on the NSC staff at the highest reaches of state and defense by some very new political appointees that had come in in the Biden administration and who were still there, you know, what was going on with them? I mean, I mean, you know, yes, the administration was dealt a bad hand in Afghanistan, uh, and uh, and yes, there was a lot of surprises like Ashraf Ghani, as well as the melting away of the Afghan National Army and security forces. But there were some decision making problems also uh, there at the among these young new political appointees up there. Uh, and so was that covered? This was a 12 page summary, I think, or at least an unclassified version, 12 pages. And there's a classified version, you know, as Patrick pointed out. But I'm really interested in what happened in terms of Biden administration decision making uh, by by the upper levels in the in the week or so before that shambolic uh, pullout happened. That's what I'm interested in. And I hope we hear something about that, because maybe there should be some responsibility taken for it. Wow. Uh, that's it. Uh, I uh, admire uh, that call, uh, Jim. Yes. Uh, at some point. Uh, this system has to work with some uh, responsibility. Speaking of which, uh, Jim, we've got about a minute left and you get to make a comment on this. Uh, we have an unprecedented indictment uh, against a former American president, which is very historic in a uh, playing out in a Manhattan courtroom. Uh, and we also had an extraordinary event that it's left many people scratching their heads uh, where um, uh, uh, Tennessee Republicans uh, wanted to oust uh, three uh, Democratic uh, lawmakers uh, for uh, uh, protesting in favor uh, of gun limits, obviously, uh, after the tragedy in Nashville, uh, where three children and three adults uh, were, were uh, killed. Uh, it turns out that uh, of the three, 
the white woman, Gloria Jackson, uh, excuse me, Gloria Johnson was spared uh, while representatives Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, uh, who are young uh, black men, uh, lost their seats, effectively leaving their districts, you know, on, on uh, you know, decorum grounds that they violated uh, rules of the body, something that's n- n- never or at least hasn't happened in more than 150 years. What's the message that things like this are sending the world? Um, you know, how, how are these sort of uh, incidents seen and influence and shape American power from your standpoint as you, as you sit there and teach uh, some of the brightest kids in France? Well, I'll, I'll say two things. One is that I think in the capitals here, uh, the, uh, NATO allied capitals and partner capitals here in Europe, uh, if if these indictments and this legal trouble that Trump finds himself in, if it really can can put him in a box, they'll be very happy because I can tell you there is such nervousness, you know, uh, that if the Republicans come swinging in, it could be Trump, it could be DeSantis, but but you know their nightmare has always been that uh, that Trump can like a zombie can come back, and uh, there, I think there's probably a lot of hope in capitals uh, that there could be a uh, silver bullet that will end the Trump uh, potential of coming back. But I will say there's not a lot of understanding about how this works in the US. I think there is a lot of head scratching about now what? (laughs) So, uh, but they're hoping that no matter what it is at the end of the day, justice is served and Trump is not gonna be the threat that he was. Now, uh, in terms of Tennessee, you know, it's really something when when you're out here in Europe and, and teaching and doing this kind of thing, the racism in the United States is not lost on everyone. And the thing is, racism is over here too. This is a common, uh, unfortunate thing uh, globally as we know, and, and France is, is, is no exception. But, there is, uh, there, but the US is held to a higher standard in a lot of ways. And certainly the US presents itself uh, as coming from a higher place. Uh, and that you would, and, and that the assumption is that the Americans are doing something about racism, that the Americans are making progress about racism, uh, and that they're going to show the rest of the world how you deal with that. And when things like Tennessee happen, uh, there's a great uh, realization and a great disappointment that the U.S. is not what they thought it was in terms of being able to handle uh, racism and the kinds of things that we see unfolding in Tennessee. Guys, thanks very much. Absolute pleasure uh, having you on the program. Uh, Wishing you all a very happy Passover and a very, very happy Easter. Uh, A quick program note for our audience, given uh, Easter is this Sunday, the normal business roundtable will be on Monday. Everybody, thanks so very much again. Really appreciate it. Have a great holiday. Uh, Have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.